This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SCR in Sydney, from Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. And we're broadcast right across the country on the Community Radio Network, as well as directly to your device across the globe. My name is Shane Anderson, filling in for Peter Frey. Coming up on this edition, Secrecy, Lies and Cover-Ups. Since 9-11, democratic nations have experienced a sharp rise in national security laws. But you might be surprised to find that it's actually us, Australia, who has experienced the strongest uptake in laws aimed to protect its citizens from the threat of terrorism. These laws have had a palpable effect on journalism here. Between high-tech surveillance, whistleblower laws and an eerily incestuous relationship between media and politics – It doesn't leave much room for journalists to, you know, do journalism. How can you hold power to account when it's hiding behind laws that could put journalists in jail? Johan Lidberg is the co-editor of a new book exploring how national security laws have crippled investigative journalism in Australia. It's called In the Name of Security, Secrecy, Surveillance and Journalism – He's also Associate Professor of Journalism at Monash University, and he joins us now over Skype. I'll jump straight into it. Johan, are national security laws in Australia turning journalists into criminals? I think there is uh, a very distinct potential for that. Um, There are a number of us that have made multiple submissions to the Australian federal government because this is a federal issue predominantly when the state have passed since 2001, September 11, 2001, the Australian federal parliament has passed more than 60 laws amended or passed new ones on national security and anti-terrorism. And a number of those in their bill format were way overreaching, far overreaching in terms of what they really needed to do. And a number of provisions, at least on the draft stage, the bill stage, were quite threatening towards journalistic practice and there were major issues. They were toned down somewhat, but there are certainly still major issues in the acts that we have. Yeah, I mean, we talk about the values of journalism being pit against this idea of, of national security, but what does national security actually mean when when you start to unpack it? Well, that is one of the problems that we discuss in uh, several places in the book. So national security is a very broad term and that's part of the problem of course so if you have a state or a government that is secretive in nature uh, you can shoehorn a lot of stuff into that term national security Uh, so that happens somewhat in Australia but certainly in the book we saw that there was a, a that was a major problem from an international perspective where governments tend to use that blanket term quite broadly Yeah, you mentioned that Australia has passed 60 laws around national security since 2001. How does that compare internationally? Is Australia worse than other countries? We are world champions. (laughs) 
in a in a in a in a very dubious sport, I would say. This is talk. This is talking about liberal um, democracies. Uh, I should add here, we have not looked at more totalitarian uh, regimes, so there might be others there. But in the liberal democratic family of nations, Australia are world leaders in passing such laws. How do you think this has impacted journalists in Australia's ability to to do journalism? Well, it's it's been a pretty severe impact, and we've seen it in a number of ways. So uh, one way is that it's it's always been hard to report on national security and anti-terrorism. And don't get me wrong here. I mean, we all want to be safe and secure. So, you know, it is a very important role for governments and the state is to make sure that citizens are, are safe and secure. So there's this balancing act between that. But then also we want to know as citizens, or and all of us, I want to know what is being done in my name. So it's become much harder for Australian journalists to access information regarding uh, national security and anti-terrorism. That's that's one area. It's always been hard, but it's become even harder. Uh, a second area which is very problematic is the protection of uh, whistleblowers. So pretty much from an Australian perspective, the only way that you can get real quality, raw information from national security agencies is via, is via whistleblowers. And even if you have confidential sources, it's become harder and harder to protect those due to the new mass surveillance technology that has emerged um, in the last decade or so. So that's the second area. And then we have the third area where quite a few of the, of the current, both amended and new acts in Australia, make it a crime to even mention a security operation. And here that's understandable because an ongoing one, of course, could be could be problematic to name, but even to report on them afterwards can actually be be um, be uh, be criminal. So those are the three areas that are the main um, issues. Yeah, let's go back to this kind of mass surveillance society. I mean, can we as journalists can we truly assure a source that they're anonymous? I think it's incredibly hard these days, to be honest. You know, and uh, it should be. Um, pointed out here, of course, that we are dealing with probably the hardest reporting area of all. So we just had a panel discussion as part of our graduate media festival at Monash University, where two of the panel members were Nick McKenzie and uh, Louise Milligan, you know, both really, really well established and probably two of the leading investigative reporters in Australia today, and especially Nick McKenzie at the age. He has, he has over decades now used a lot of confidential sources both in his coverage of national security issues but also organized crime and he sort of said you have to be a bit careful so you don't become a bit paranoid but by the same token it is very hard today Um, it's always been problematic but the convenience of you know online technologies and communication tools can be treacherous as well. So it's pretty hard if you grant confidentiality to, to a source that it's not done um, lightly, of course. Then how do you, one, communicate with this person? Uh, yes, you can use encrypted messaging apps on your phone, which are pretty good. Uh, you can use encrypted email, for sure. But all these, if someone really, really wants to uh, actually get to the source, everything that goes and use it's being used online can be accessed and hacked into. And then you have the third um, added one where we used to be able to meet 
people face to face, you know, um, in private. That's very hard these days because of the, the CCTV cameras that are everywhere. And if you couple that with facial recognition software, it becomes virtually impossible. You can go out into an open field and meet. But then, of course, if you're being, you know, followed by someone or um, surveilled by someone, we have drones. So it's very hard. Yeah, that sounds very Cold War almost. I, I mean, <laughs> how do you avoid being paranoid about that? Um, I think you need to look at, you need to make a pretty frank assessment of the project that you're working on. You know, what what sort of, who are you dealing with here? And I did discuss this with Nick McKenzie at length, actually, when he's been doing quite a quite a few stories and investigations into um, organised crime in Melbourne. And that is probably the, the one of the trickier ones. So he sort of takes a frank assessment at, at the beginning of each project and tries to assess the risk. So it's about risk assessment. You know, how likely is it that someone would actually um, follow you, um, surveil you, possibly come after you? And he sort of bases it on that. But he uses, he uses online tools a lot, but with heavy encryption, of course. So using Tor operating software is an important one. Um, using the Signal app, for instance, on your mobile phone, which has got very, very um, good encryption on it. So that's the sort of stuff you need to think about. Where do we draw this line as well between being paranoid about all the kind of possibilities of surveillance technology between like journalists actually being under surveillance? Like, do we know how how common it is for journalists to be tracked? No, we don't. <laughs> and, and that's part of the problem. So, so if you look at, um, we have a chapter in the book that charts this historically, the second chapter, which is really, really interesting because this is nothing new, of course. You know, states and governments have kept, they've been keeping tabs on journalists for for a long, long time, for decades. In Australia, for instance, in that particular chapter, because some of the, um, some of the archival material is now available, it sort of charts uh, how the pre-runner to um, the Australian SIG wow. Intelligence Organisation was... Um, were surveilling, you know, journalists and during the Second World War, even during the First World War, and so on. So we know it historically. However, today it's really hard to know to what extent that journalists are being, you know, kept kept tabs on. Until the Edward Snowden revelations, we really we knew that the new online tools and so on uh, had great potential for mass surveillance, but not to the extent. Uh, did we know that it was so common and so drastically huge? So Snowden did us a great favour. But because of the nature of uh, intelligence and national security and surveillance, uh, it only pops up every now and then. You know, there are um, court um, warrant and order restrictions on how intelligence agencies can, can use it to access, for instance, metadata from journalists. We had this that one example with Paul Farrell, um, who is now with ABC, but he used to be with Guardian Australia, how his um, phone metadata was accessed, um, I think, by the Australian Federal Police a few years ago. But, you know, it's impossible to say how common it is, actually. Do you, do you think this paranoia alone can have an impact on what people are more likely to report on? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So I think there's been a distinct um, chilling effect from just the fact that you have those tools and those possibilities. I'm, 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 I'm sure that is the case. There's actually a really good um, 
probably survey and interview study to be done there. But if you look at, so that connects back to, you know, if, if, the, if the current Australian laws and acts in national security are turning journalists into, into, uh, into criminals, it sort of connects back to that because not only are there some provisions there, but the, 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 the sort of weight of those new laws and amendments make it really hard to know what you can and can't do. And yes, we do have, you know, sometimes we have legal assistance and stories are legal and so on. But on every day, on everyday basis, it, it, you can sort of almost feel the weight of the law bearing down on journalists working in these um, fields. I'd like to talk a little bit about, I guess, the rhetoric of, of national security. So uh, in your book, you make the connection between national security and the idea of terrorism. But when you look at the stats, Australia has really extreme security laws in comparison to, I guess, relatively few terrorist incidents. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you look at the number of terrorism cases that have gone to court, they are quite low. Uh, there are a number of plots that have been foiled that should be acknowledged. But the question is, and this is the balance, you know, how much and what, how much power does the state actually need to keep us safe? And it would seem to me uh, that there is an overreach. And that's the point that we make in the book, too. That's, that's when we talk about this notion of um, a state of exception. You know, we would call it state of emergency, but this is based on... Uh, this really interesting Italian political philosopher called Giorgio Agamben, who uh, in 2005, I think it was published, the book State of Exception, where he traces this notion back all the way back to Roman times, actually. And he, he, made, he gives uh, many examples of how states historically have used the um, external threats for domestic purposes to sort of, you know, give, give themselves more... Um, far-reaching powers. And the point that we make is that in times of perceived higher threat levels, if you then increase the state powers, it is absolutely vital that when these threat levels sort of become lower again, you need to wind back those state powers. What we have seen nothing of that in Australia. We've seen one review. But our argument then is that if we keep this high, these high levels of anti- terrorists and the national security powers. Once it flares up again, as it probably will, you start from a higher level. So you just increase it more and more and more. You know. Yeah. I wonder how that plays into the fact that I guess the biggest perceived threat to Australian borders of the past couple of years has been asylum seekers. Yeah, that's a really weird one. I, I, I can never, I never understand that one. I know. And to, to me, that's political dog whistling. You know, how can these people that come from desperate circumstances that are risking not only their own lives but their young kids lives you know to to run away from something that is making their lives miserable or might even kill them how can they be a threat this whole notion of potential you know (laughs) terrorists that mean us harm the sort of notion that they would hide and go undetected within those groups of asylum seekers i i just find that an incredibly far-fetched thought. I believe that was disproved as well by a by a parliamentary committee not that long ago. Yeah, and unfortunately, we we have a number of politicians currently who are using this over and over again as a sort of a dog whistling thing, and it's it's frankly it's frankly uh, completely it's an international embarrassment, and we've been told time and again. 
that we should stop this practice, you know. And it's frankly, again, it's being done in the name of us citizens. And I find it deeply disturbing and deeply embarrassing. Yeah, and in the name of of national security as well. What are some of the ways that journalists have been restricted in reporting on things like like offshore detention? Well, (laughs) the the very clear, the sort of clearest one is that Nauru uh, have pretty much uh, made it impossible for independent journalists to get onto the island, you know, either by refusing them visas or by making visas so expensive. From memory, they were charging (laughs) $8,000 for a visa, uh, for a media visa that you need to have. So that's the most concrete um, way that they've done it, I suppose. And also made it, as you were pointing to before, they've made it very hard for people, staff that have been working on Nauru, for instance, to speak up. Um, And you've got things like the Border Force Act, where the government can jail people who speak out against the regime. Yeah, and they have that power, but it hasn't been used yet. And I don't think it will, actually, because it's really, really poor government PR. (laughs) If you sort of think back to the 1990s, um, there were a number of uh, Australian journalists who spent short amounts of time in jail. I think the longest was a a few weeks uh, for uh, refusing to give up their um, naming their sources in court. And that was horrible, you know, government PR as well. You sort of you've got you got they reported on really high public interest issues and then you you lock up the messenger it did look horrible and actually that's what started the move towards us getting shield laws what are the shield laws so they are amendments to what's called the evidence acts um, in uh, all jurisdictions but three currently in australia so they make a provision for the presiding judge or magistrate who hears the case to allow the um, journalist to not name a source. Uh, there's been a number of, there's been three cases so far, and two of them, uh, the uh, the shield laws have been allowed and used and actually protected the journalist from naming um, their source. We don't know, however, how effective they will be, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. What do you think the, the fear is on behalf of the government? Why, why would you go to such lengths? I mean, not just talking about offshore detention, but the whole national security regime in general. Well, to, to, me, to me, there is a, a, a very strong connection to Australia's sort of heritage with, uh, with the UK, where in the UK there's been an act called the Official Secrets Act since the beginning of the 1900s. And pretty much that act says that if you're a public servant, if you if you become employed as, as a public servant, you are then not allowed to disclose any information without having permission from your superiors. So that's that's a separate act in the UK, but and we don't have a similar act. But the the spirit of that act sort of it permeates our criminal code, for instance. So in all criminal codes around Australia in all jurisdictions, there are similar similar provisions that in effect does the same as the Official Secrets Act does in the UK. So it's it's this notion of of not not wanting to be open when you govern uh, that we have, you know, tried to change for decades in Australia now. We've we've sort of made some inroads, but it's still there. And it's this notion of government is best done when governments are left alone. That's the base premise, I think. That doesn't sound very democratic. No, no, it isn't. <laughs> and it, it takes a long, long time to change this. And, 
And um, if you look from an international perspective, it's actually Australia and UK, as we find in the book too, they are the outliers by far. You know, even within the old international commonwealth, like you know, Canada, um, the US and New Zealand, they are much, they have less of this sort of secrecy thing, much less actually. So uh, for some reason, the UK and, and UK and Australia have sort of stayed in this. And as I said, some changes have been made, but there are, there's still a long way to go. And do you think these kind of laws have enough of an impact to silence opposition or silence journalism? Well, if you take the if you take the the example of um, uh, public servants, for instance, so uh, in the federal um, criminal code that I know best, there's a section seventy in there that states that if a if a public servant reveals any information or shares any information with someone outside the, the um their department or outside government they are then liable for up to two years in jail you know and this is any information all the way from how many paper clips you have in your desk all the way to national security matters which is a ridiculously you know wide scope so that's a concrete that's a concrete way that journalists are limited in who they can actually talk to and get information from. That's why we have this whole notion of and madness of, you know, everything going via the media department these days, because most of the public servants aren't actually allowed to talk, you know. So that's a concrete example. You you did mention before as well, one of the biggest kind of threats to, to journalism is cracking down on, on whistleblowers. Yeah. Can you talk me through what's the what's the threat of, of whistleblowers? Well, I mean, you have a, it depends on what area um, they come from. So if they're from the public service, you have those criminal um, provisions. So if you have a confidential whistleblower who, uh, uh, whose name is eventually found out and revealed, they can lose their job, they can go to jail. So there's pretty severe uh, things there. If they're from the corporate sector, you quite often have the issue of um, employees as part of signing their employment contract, uh, that there are confidentiality clauses in there. And of course, if they if they become a journalistic source and they give you controversial information about the company, they're in breach of this clause. And again, they could lose their job and go to jail. And then again, as I said before, if you're dealing with whistleblowers within the organized crime sphere, it could actually be dangerous to life. So there, there are lot, lots of those. And, and, and Australia would do well to look internationally in terms of best practice whistleblower protection. So there are a number of those around where the whole onus is turned around, where the onus is actually on, for instance, government departments to justify why they at all should question who the source is. In Australia, we have the opposite, unfortunately. Yeah. How, how does the Australian government treat whistleblowers? Really, 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 really poorly. So, so they actually pursue them actively. They go after them. They, if, if there is a suspected leak within a department, the department head, even the minister, usually the department head, will, will pursue them forever. One of the most prominent examples of late is, of course, Witness K, you know, uh, the, uh, former, the former Australian spy, I suppose, who was part of the uh, bugging operation of the Timor-Leste embassy in the lead-up to the australia timor Leste Timor Gap oil and gas treaty, where he was part of kitting out that house with bugging devices to give the Australian government an advantage in the lead up to those negotiations, which is a pretty disgusting thing to do. You have here a really, really poor neighbour that you've helped become independent and, and then you spy on them so you can get a better deal when it comes to 
oil and gas. And this witness, Kay, was so disgusted by this that he blew the whistle and spoke to a number of journalists about this, and they are pursuing him full tilt. Yeah, Witness K is is such a great example because it's a really shocking and ethically dubious story, but I feel like the media response to it here was was fairly muted. Yeah, yeah, which is a bit disappointing, I must say. There's a there's a real something to really be pursued here. Um, Bernard Keane in Crikey should have a lot of credit for doggedly staying with this, and there's a few of us who do research that are sort of trying to really stay with it too. Yeah, I I don't know why it was so lame, I must say, or tame the um, the media pursuit of this, because the story, of course, is that we that we behaved appallingly towards the neighbour. The story isn't that we have a, you know, we have a former spy who was discussed. The story should be, you know, why on earth did we behave so appallingly? And it, it just, I don't know why it's fallen by the side. Maybe it is because, partly could be because um, he has decided to not speak publicly. Maybe if he spoke publicly, it would be a um, would be a bigger issue. And you've written in your book as well about the potential ripple effects of whistleblowers. So one of the examples that that is given is is Andrew Wilkie, mm. and uh, and had the media been able to to fully report on the case for 2003 invasion of Iraq, um, which Australia was part of under the Howard government, the the ripple effects of being able to to properly get access to this information and see both sides of the argument, this would have had a, a huge impact. Yeah, it would have. And, and Andrew Wilkie should really be strongly, strongly commended for probably being one of the most integrity strong people in Australia for what he did. You know, he, again, he was a, a colonel and a, a high ranking intelligence official who dis, who and he realized that there's no way that I can keep my job here. So he resigned first before he blew the whistle because he knew that, you know, that was the end of his intelligence career, essentially. He he did expose the weak case, really clearly. I think again, again, the media wasn't really willing to report fully on this. I think, and here I must say that um, the Murdoch media carry most of the blame for that. I must say they were as one across the globe in terms of the case for Iraq being being just and right. And we know now, of course, that there was no such case. You know. But having said that, um, other parts of Australian media, unfortunately, did not step up quite the way they should have either. So, yeah, that's an example of where you wish that that there would have been more transparency and perhaps then that uh, completely useless war could have been avoided. It's almost like you're describing then not just, I guess, government secrecy versus investigative journalism, but, I mean, the idea of what journalism should be versus government secrecy versus also media empires? Yeah, yeah. So media ownership concentration is a huge issue, of course, in Australia. Not only in Australia, it's, it's, a, it's a global issue, but Australia is, is particularly bad and stands out in its concentration. I've just finished a, a piece for the Australian Quarterly that, that talks about this. So, yeah, so if, if you have... I mean, usually, um, even within the, the big media owners, there would be a bit of diversity. In the case of the lead up to the 2003 Iraqi war, that was not the case. You know, most most sang in tune with the government and actually were mouthpieces of the government. There was very little serious questioning about the actual case for this war. And it's hugely problematic. You, you sort of see then, you see that the really pro- really problematic situation you get when you have not enough media diversity. 
Yeah, and if we, I guess, move forward to, to 2018, do you think journalism in Australia is is doing a good enough job of challenging this? I think I think Australian journalism is trying. There's the honest honest attempts, I think, in pockets. What worries me most is is the current attacks on the ABC, actually, and uh, ABC and public broadcasters globally. They are the the best repository that we have for carrying in-depth public interest and investing in journalism across and keep it alive for enough time for commercial media to figure out the next business plan. We are seeing we're seeing some, you know, possibilities regarding that and I'm quite optimistic that we've um, turned the turned the corner, but these attacks on the ABC and the defunding, you know, in almost 25% of the total ABC budget has been cut since 2013. Of course, when Tony Abbott in that election campaign on election eve, famously promised no cuts to the ABC and the SBS, and um, more than a hundred million, you know, have been cut since. So that worries me most because I think that's that's not to say that there isn't good journalism done um, outside the ABC. I'm just pointing out the fact that it's the most obvious way to keep independent journalism going in Australia. And to add to that, we it's not only an Australian matter this because if you look across the globe. There are only between 11 to 15 properly funded and independent public broadcasters. And th- that number varies a bit on what you choose to define as properly funded. But if we take the ABC as an example, you know, close to a billion dollars per year, that's properly funded. Right. So and that's, because, sorry, 11 to 15 public broadcasters around out of every country in the world, not yes, just democracies. Yes. Wow. That are, that, are, that are properly funded and independent. You have a high number of public broadcasters, but a lot of them are, of course, you know, what we, what we call state broadcasters. So they're just propaganda tools, really. So that means that if, if the ABC is diminished and cut back further and further and further, it's not only a diminishment of Australian independent journalism, it actually has a global impact. So we have a lot of responsibility there. Yeah. So what is the way forward then? Can journalism in Australia meet the challenge? Well, there are a number of things to uh, to consider. I think another review is would be timely to look to assess the powers that the Australian national security apparatus have got. You know, are they at the right, right level? Is the, is the um, both real and perceived, you know, terrorism threat, is that lower now? So... And if so, does that mean that we then need to somehow roll back a bit of those powers? Certainly when it comes to transparency and um, ability to access information on this sort of stuff. So Australia stands out as well in terms of freedom of information laws and the fact that all Australian uh, national security agencies are completely exempt from FOI. That's not the case in the US, for instance. In the US, you can use FOI to get information from the CIA. It's not easy, but you know, sends an important message. So I would suggest that FOI should apply to all government agencies, every single one. That's another concrete one. And the third one that I think needs to be considered as well is, of course, whistleblower protection. So there needs to be you know, a lot of thinking around uh, how they can be protected and seen as an asset and a good thing rather than bad guys. We need to think carefully about that. We do mention in the book the um, Tashwana principles, which was a, which was a really quite remarkable agreement between 70 countries, or it was an agreement on um, guidelines for how to balance security and um, openness. Uh, and I think those. 
principles. There are 40 of them. We, Australia, could do really well from having a long, hard look at them. All right. Well, thank you very much, Johan, for coming on the show. You're welcome. That was Johan Lidberg, Associate Professor of Journalism at Monash University. And he's also co-editor of the book In the Name of Security. That's it for this episode, so make sure you subscribe so you can hear more independent analysis of journalists and journalism. We'll be back soon, so stay in touch on Facebook or Twitter. The handle is at 4 Estate AU. My name is Shane Anderson. Thank you for listening.